Lord, we do uh, desire that you work amongst us today in our different setting, and we uh, look to you as usual to not only answer the unspoken prayers that everyone has, concerns that everyone has, either personal or people around them or situations. We just commit these things to you, knowing that you know exactly what to do, and you want us just to bring them to you, and we may not know all the details. But we praise you for that. We praise you for your sovereign hand. And I pray especially today that uh, we would uh, think clearly and be able to understand what your word says in an area that is difficult and not so evident, not so easily understood. We desire that your word would uh, be illumined by the Holy Spirit, that we might understand it. And I just pray that I can teach it accurately and clearly. So we just commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let me get into our study. And as we have been studying, we've been in the book of Romans. We've been looking at a very important section of the book. I'm not going to review it other than uh, just kind of remind you where we were the last time we were looking at the book of Romans. And in that, we have gotten into verses 6 and 7. This is after Paul is mourning and sorrowful that his fellow Jewish people, brethren, he calls them, they are missing out on uh, much of what God had planned for them in terms of what he promised. And uh, he begins in verse 6, It's not as though the word of God has failed. And if you read the context, he's referring probably more specifically because of what follows to the Abrahamic covenant. So he's not talking about the Bible in general, although I think that's true as well. But more specifically, the Abrahamic covenant as it pertains to the nation of Israel. So these chapters deal with the nation of Israel. And then he's going to give basically the reasons why the word of God has not failed. And this is very important because he's explaining in this whole passage, 9 through 11, why God has set aside the nation of Israel and is now working with Gentiles, which to a Jew in the first century or in the Old Testament, this was unheard of. I mean, these are dogs. These are outcasts. These are pagans. And God is bringing them in and they don't have to go through the temple and they don't have to go through the law. And all they have to do is trust in this Messiah that the nation and uh, the Roman Empire crucified. What's going on? What's God doing? So he takes them all the way back and says what God is doing in the first century is a pattern that he is following even from the very, very beginning when he first called Abraham. And he's identifying Israel from two perspectives. He's saying, for they are not all Israel. And I kind of drew a chart and showed you what he means by that. All ethnic Israel. They're not all true Israel who are descended from ethnic Israel. So those descended from Israel, if you think of descendants of Abraham, Even historically, that's not the case, and that's the point he's going to make. Nor are they all children, and when he uses that word children, he's often referring to children of God. Now, he's not talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about Israelites or people descended from Abraham, but not every one of them historically are the children of God. Not all of them are in the line that... God promised through Abraham. So he's distinguishing Israel in general. In other words, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But even that, in the first century, not all of them who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are what he's identifying in verse 6 as what we would describe as true Israel or regenerate Israel. Then verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. In other words, even from the beginning, God has begun to select, if you will, 
we're going to talk about that whole concept or a doctrine that we describe as a doctrine of election. That goes all the way back to Abraham's descendants. It's not through Ishmael. And every Jew would be familiar with that and say, yeah, we know we've had problems with the Ishmaelites throughout our history. And then he goes on. The next slide that I wanted to look at was the one in verse 11. And not only through Isaac, but then beginning in in verse 10, he's going to say that God even separated and distinguished between even the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And obviously Jewish people would be familiar with that. And then he says in verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born, and this gives us some insight into God's perspective on this doctrine, and we'll come back to it, but there's a very important phrase in verse 11. And when the twins had not been born and had not done anything good or bad in order, and here's kind of a purpose phrase, in other words, so that we would know, so that God would, uh, in fact, make clear that God's purpose, and we have a little phrase there in the Greek text that is a very powerful phrase, and what I'm really doing is expanding in this study today on that phrase where he says that God's purpose according to his choice, that goes together. In fact, those are closely related. You might even say according to God's elect purpose. So there seems to be this concept, this broad idea that involves choices that God made as part of a plan and part of his purposes. And because of this strong statement that the purposes according to his choice might stand, in other words, might be evident or might be realized, you can't go around it. You can't escape it. So we're going to look at that concept. What is this purpose and what is this idea of God's choice? And that leads us to this broader doctrine. And I thought it'd be useful to kind of take a step back and answer Jeff's question. Uh, Here's where our study today, he asked if it stands alone. Well, it can stand alone because I'm going to spend the rest of the time developing this concept and hopefully the biblical concept of election. And obviously there's a lot of controversy over it, a lot of difficulty with it, a lot of people are afraid of it, people get angry over it, and hopefully my hope is that we can have some clarity on it. And at least you may not agree necessarily with everything that I say, but at least you will see the options and the possibilities and if that's all that I can communicate, then that's 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 good. So feel free at any time to jump in and ask a question. Uh, as we said earlier, you might keep your mics muted and, until you're ready to ask a question. I think somebody's got their mic on. I've got some background noise there, unless you've got a quick question there. So we're going to look at this controversial area. And the main thing that I want to accomplish is at least explain where people differ and uh, give you the option that I think is the best one in each of the stages that we'll go through. There are several stages that kind of lead up to different controversies in this whole area. You'll see them as they pop up. So we're dealing with an area that is not easy. In fact, I don't even bring it up or mention it to an unbeliever because they just An unbeliever can't understand a lot of these things anyway. So we would consider this solid food. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able. So in general, even the body of Christ and in the first century, the Corinthians We're not able to handle doctrines like this or concepts, biblical concepts. And the writer of Hebrews, he starts to talk about the doctrine of Melchizedek. And then he stops in the middle of it. He picks it up later on. But he stops in the middle of it because the audience that he's writing to, they are dull of hearing as well. He makes a similar statement, Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be able to teach these things. 
you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And what we're doing here, these are not elementary. This is this will stretch your thinking, your theology, if you will, because in some places, like the doctrine of the Trinity, in fact, part of this involves human responsibility and uh, God's sovereign hand. We'll get a little bit into that. These are not easy things to put together. And like Bill Mone always likes to remind us with Isaiah 55, the things of God, the, the ways of God are beyond our comprehension. And some of these we may never be able to put together. So this is one of those areas. So the writer of Hebrews, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have you have come to need milk, not solid food. So I'm trusting that uh, you are not in the category of the Corinthians that Paul writes to or the Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews writes to. And uh, you all are going to think clearly and we'll guide ourselves as we walk through this whole area. So let's talk about divine election. So basically, I'm giving you a little bit of an introduction here and some of the issues immediately. And then as we get into different areas here, I'll kind of remind you. But but basically, this idea of divine election Raise us in our thinking, in our humanness and in our thinking that there seems to be some favoritism here. And even in Romans 9, you might have the same feeling. Well, well, what about Ishmael? I mean, why did God pass over him? Why did God focus on Isaac? There seems to be some favoritism here, even in the Old Testament But generally, when we talk about this doctrine, we're talking about it in terms of believers in the church age. And one of the things that I've been saying that Romans 9 through 11 deals with Israel. And the reason I want to go through this is because I think there are some different categories of this whole area. So one of the main issues in the first one is this idea of favoritism. Is God playing favorites? And some would even say, is God choosing one over another? That doesn't seem, there's just something here that doesn't seem right. And related to this idea of God playing favorites, that leads to another question. If God chose some, if he chose Isaac over Ishmael, if he chose Jacob over Esau, why didn't God choose or elect all? And we know that that's not the case because we know that not everyone obviously goes to be with the Lord in eternity. So some of the issues involved deal with destinies, if you will, and God playing favoritism. And that kind of leads to the idea, and that's also present in the Romans 9 through 11 passage. What about human volition? Doesn't this kind of erase the whole concept of man's will. In fact, this is the heart of the whole controversy. And there's different ways of approaching this whole issue. And part of the problem is one's view of human volition and and whether you lean in the direction of human abolition and or whether you lean in the direction of God choosing or God's God's work. And I'll go over that a little bit more when we get there. And what about the issue of free will? And if you've heard me in the past, when we get to passages that deal with volition or man's will, I don't call it free will because I don't think any sinner's will is free because it is always tainted by sin and the fall of man. So I don't like to use the word free will, but those that lean in that direction will use that phraseology. So I call it human volition. Does God override it in these issues of selection and choice? Is it somehow undermined or compromised, you might say, the the human volition? So that's one of the issues that we'll deal with. And uh, one of the other issues that's raised, even in Romans 9, what about, isn't this unfair that God takes this idea of favoritism? There seems to be 
something not righteous, not just, not fair. In fact, that's the word that we generally think of, of fairness. So we'll get into God's justice. In fact, Paul will. Now, we won't get to that today, but this is one of the issues, the issue of the justice of God, not selecting all, for example, or selecting some and not others. That seems to be inequitable. And uh, some would accuse, particularly the viewpoint that I'll take, as isn't this just another form of fatalism? And if you want to call it Christian fatalism, are we talking about God setting in motion a plan that there's no no variant variation in it. There's uh, this God foreordaining every molecule, every electron, every path, and that kind of goes along with the human volition. Does this totally obliterate human volition? Number two above there. So the accusation of this is just another form of fatalism. So that's another issue that we'll have to address. Is this Christian fatalism? And doesn't this make God, this idea, eeny, meeny, miny, mo? I pick Joe instead of Alex, picking one as the other, just kind of an arbitrary choice. And I think this is clearly answered in, in almost all of the passages that deal with election, because in most of them, we have a clear purpose. And one of the things I'll say up front is the doctrine of election does not, in fact, only a small number of passages pertain to the Christian and to the individual, and a small percentage of them deal with eternal life. They all have a purpose in a broader and a bigger plan of God. Even the Ephesians 1.4, there's a purpose statement in there when God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. He gives a purpose there that we would be holy and righteous in that context. So there's a purpose. And every one of these choices that God makes are not arbitrary. In fact, none of them are arbitrary. They're part of a bigger plan. We may not understand it. We may not understand all of the aspects of it. But there's no arbitrariness in God's election. And there are some ultra... Calvinists that would even say that evangelism is not needed, and some would charge all of us that would hold the viewpoint that leans towards God's election that, uh, well, why evangelize if God has foreordained and God has already made choices and those that he's going to pass over that he's already made the choice, so there's no need for evangelism. Well, again, uh, God has commanded us for one, and God wants us to be involved in his work. And none of us know who are the elect, if you will, and who are not. So we, we go forward with what God has told us to do because that's part of what he has, has, uh, orchestrated in his plan. And the means by which God will use us in that plan he has identified as this whole idea of reaching the lost through what we call evangelism. So these are the main issues that hopefully we can sort out, and some of them we may not satisfactorily answer all of the questions, but these are the ones that I'm going to try to address as we go through all of this. And again, we won't go through the outline sheet, the complete, we won't complete it today, but We'll come back to wherever we end up. So those are the main issues. There's other less important ones that arise that are somewhat related to these larger categories that I just laid out. So right off the bat, what I think, these are the responses that we should have to this doctrine. I think these are the biblical, biblical responses. Rather than anger, I think this doctrine, like any Biblical doctrine should elicit certain responses, and I've just listed a few here of trusting that what God has set in motion and what God has revealed in terms of his plan and his purposes, I just should simply bow down before him, accept that that God has designed, and in humility, praise him and give him all the glory 
and trust him with this whole doctrine of election. Secondly, because if you are a genuine believer, you are a chosen one. Just like Israel in the Old Testament, there's lots of passages. We'll get into these later. But Israel was the chosen people of God. In this age, in this dispensation, as members of the body of Christ, we are the chosen. We are the elect. And to think of being outside of that is a depressing thought, but the alternative is to praise God and his grace, and it should produce a certain amount of joy. So that is a response I'm hoping that this whole study elicits an appreciation that in eternity past, God chose me. Thirdly, it should give us confidence if God has orchestrated things in eternity past, and has worked them out in time. We've been seeing this over and over as we've looked at different portions of Scripture. We see a plan that God has. And if he's orchestrated things in the past, then anything that is still in the future and that he promises, we can be assured that, as we saw in Romans, the end of Romans 8, there's great security For those that have trusted in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So nothing in the future, we're promised that we are secure. So it gives us confidence in our relationship to God because God is the one that fulfills promises. Motivation should motivate us. And this is where that Ephesians 1-4 passage comes in. Motivate us to holy living because that's the purpose of the choice. It's not just simply for us to be blessed, and it is, but it's also that we would, in fact, walk in a different way. We are chosen to walk. We are chosen for holiness and should motivate us to the whole Christian walk, the whole Christian life that we've just completed studying in chapter 6 through 8. And we spent, what, almost a year or more? Can't remember, but that was one of the things. Another response I think uh, it should cause us, in humility, like we say on number one on my slide there, it should elicit worship and glorifying God. And I think this doctrine is intended to glorify God. He's revealed something of his plan. And this is a glorious doctrine. It's not one that is intended to elicit controversy or fear or anxiety or questioning, but it should... uh, Not only humble us, but humble us to the point that we worship God. So these are some of the responses that I hope this study elicits as we go through some of the details of it. And even if we argue amongst ourselves that we might uh, continually go back and in some cases maybe even agree to disagree because we're, we're dealing with an issue that we probably... Somebody commenting there? Nope. Okay, so those are the responses that I hope this whole thing elicits. And I think before we get into the doctrine itself, I think you have to lay a little bit of foundation. And this foundation, this what I'm basically going to give you here is my understanding of some essential doctrines that we need to understand in order to put the doctrine of election in a proper perspective. And from these perspectives, this leads me to the conclusions that I have come to that I'll, I'll share as we get into it. So the first essential understanding is, I think you have to start with the nature of man. And if we understand the nature of man and understand depravity, it's a doctrine related to the doctrine of man, And even in Romans, particularly when we were in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where Paul is describing essentially the lostness of mankind and the reason for the lostness and the deadness that is in the unbeliever, we talked about depravity in some detail. I'm going to just review very quickly a couple of slides just to remind you and highlight the parts of the slide that pertain to this This area, this doctrine, so the nature of man and the depravity of man, I think you need to understand the biblical teaching. So let me real quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, 
We went back to Genesis 3 and the first sin and when the Bible, particularly in Genesis, but we saw in Romans as well, when it speaks of death, it's not talking about ceasing to breathe in the context that we were looking at it and like Ephesians 2 as well. I don't think it's talking about people that are not breathing and their heart is not ticking. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about death? And I drew from Genesis chapter 3. It involves spiritual death, first and foremost. And we saw that in that Adam and Eve were separated from God immediately after they sinned. It has an intellectual aspect. I brought that out. The New Testament calls that intellectual darkening or the minds of the unbeliever are darkened. They cannot see spiritual truth. It involves the moral aspect, morality, their shame for actions. And I don't have on this slide, I ought to add it, but one of the things that's going to come into play is that area of volition. And uh, I believe that our will is affected as well. And uh, the reason we fall into shame is because we have made choices. We have made wrong decisions that are contrary to what God has said. And now that brings shame, and we saw that in the account of Adam and Eve. It involves the emotions. In verse 10 in Genesis 3, we have fear. It even involves our relationships with others. Remember, Adam blamed Eve, and there's the blame game, 11 and 12, Genesis 3. It involved the purpose of man, 17 through 18. All of this, these are aspects of deadness. This is what the unbeliever is. He's dead. In his trespasses and sins, it's spiritual, it's intellectual, it's moral, it's emotional, it's social. It involves our purpose, and it even, in Genesis 3, involves the physical. Not that Adam and Eve ceased to breathe. Adam lived another 930 years before he stopped breathing. But I made the point that the text, in verse 19, speaks of pain and dying, turning back into dust. But even biologically, today we know that the moment we are, in fact, even before we are born, our cells are continually dying because of sin. Death comes as a result of sin. So there's death and it's physical. Your physical cells are dying. Look in the mirror. You'll, you, you can see it immediately. And yet you continue to breathe and you continue to have your heart beating. So that was Genesis 3. And when I was in, or we were in Romans 3, we have kind of the same elements. And if you go through Romans 3, none righteous, none have a relationship with God. And I think this is kind of a summary. Uh, This is 3.10, Romans 3.10. And I think it's a general statement, a spiritual, like the Ephesians 2, we're dead, spiritual deadness, none righteous. So it's spiritual. It's intellectual. None, there's none that understands. Remember the biblical text, Romans 3. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks God. There's volition. Verse 11, none that seeks God. So volition is involved. And let me expand this one because this is going to come into play in this doctrine of election. And to what extent does volition, is volition involved? Because those that take a slightly different view than the one that I'm taking will say, well, man must, and I I don't disagree, must believe and all of the commands of scripture that call upon us to to respond to God and, and to believe in him and to repent from sin, that those are appeals to our volition. And the issue is when we speak of depravity, in fact, there's a distinction made. Those in our camp basically believe in depravity, but also believe that it does not extend to total depravity in terms of the will. In other words, God has left the will to be able to respond. Otherwise, all of the commands are are, are mute. In other words, why even issue the commands if man is not capable of responding? Well, I think that in some way, the will is also involved in uh, in depravity. And the biblical text, verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. And we have a series, beginning in verse 12, 
all have turned aside. That's as a result of volition. And this is all of mankind. Remember, he's summarizing all of mankind. Decisions. And he says, all have turned aside together. They have become useless because they are tainted by sin. They don't have any spiritual effect. That's deadness. And there is none who does good. This is in a doctrinal passage. This is a description of depravity. So our our decisions are involved. And the perspective I'm taking is that none are going to respond unless God intervenes. And I think the doctrine of election begins with God in eternity past. He intervened, if you will. Well, I don't know if you can call it intervening, but God began the plan before he even created the universe. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, depravity and death involves volition and the outworking of volition decisions. It involves communication. Their throat is an open grave. Notice the analogy with speaking and and communicating here. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. This is the outworking of decisions in our communication. And then verse 13, the end of it, the poison of asps is under their lips. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The whole area of communication is dead, doesn't build up, doesn't bring life. That's a description of depravity and lost humanity. And not only communication, but actions, 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. So it works itself out in overt actions against others. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and all the path of peace have have they not known? There is no fear of God. So we have emotions involved in verse 18. No fear of God before their eyes. So that's where I come from when we talk about the doctrine of election. We need to understand that man is utterly incapable of reaching God, utterly incapable, I would even say, of even responding to the the calling and the gospel message, we need for God to intervene. And I think some of this is brought out when we talk about the doctrine of justification that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. But before we get to it, we also have to, I think, understand the doctrine of God. And when it comes to God, we need to remember who God is in electing He is a holy God, which means that he cannot tolerate sin. He will not have a relationship with sinful man apart from payment of that sin because of his holiness. And there's lots of passages. I'm not going to give you all of them. Isaiah 6, 3, the one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. These are angelic creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And there's literally hundreds of passages, Old Testament, New Testament, that stress the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So he's righteous. We saw in Romans the stress on the righteousness of God throughout the entire book and kind of the pinnacle passage, if you will, in justification by faith, how we enter into that righteousness 326, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, he demonstrates it, demonstration at this present time, so that he would be just, God is just, and he's the justifier, he's the one that brings justification, there's nothing that we can do because of depravity, he's the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus We also know, we also saw in Romans, that he's omniscient, Romans 8. He has foreknowledge. He sees everything in advance. He knows all of the options, all of the possibilities. And we can trust that whatever he has planned that includes the doctrine of election, God knows all of the options, and this is the best option. At least this is the one that he deemed the one that he would effect So the omniscience of God, you could use Psalm 147, 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. 
His understanding is infinite. He knows everything, every option. And when he chooses Isaac over Jacob, God knows what he's doing. He knows every option. He knows what he's doing. And he loves us. So you could stress the love of God. He loves humanity. He loves all of mankind. And the passages that speak that uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, it's not like God is deliberately, and I think the viewpoint that I'm presenting sometimes would be accused that it limits God, but God, I think, leaves the option for whoever, but the whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's other passages like Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18.23, where it speaks in terms of God's love and concern. Ezekiel passage, he's dealing with sin in a family situation. He says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The implied answer there is no. And the Lord is speaking, declares the Lord God. Rather, rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. God desires the sinner to turn and to come. And the door is open to whomever. But the view that I have of depravity is that depravity is such of such a nature that our wills are affected and all of those other areas, our intellect, etc., our emotions, everything, such that without God intervening, none would respond. And you can go back all the way to Genesis 3. Who initiates the conversation when God is going to restore Adam and Eve? It's God himself. God is the one that takes the initiative. Adam and Eve are fleeing. That's the nature of depravity. So the point I will make is it's not an issue of why did God not choose all. The issue is why did God choose any? Based on the justice of God, God would have been perfectly righteous and just to totally destroy and bring death to Adam and Eve. That was what was promised in the day that you take of the fruit in the midst or eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden. You shall surely die. Remember, that's a Hebrew infinitive absolute. You shall die dead. That's what God promises. That's what God says. That's the penalty for sin. And the question is, is why did God choose anyone? And why did he begin by bringing an opportunity for for change in Adam and Eve? So the nature of God, he's loving. And if you want a corresponding verse in the New Testament, the one that is well known, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, this is good and acceptable, and he's talking about prayers for, for kings and authorities in high places, and the assumption is that these are unbelievers. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's not like God, any, meeny, miny, mo. I'm going to choose this one. I'm going to reject that one because I'm a hard and judgmental God, but it involves his love and his grace. In fact, in the Romans passage, it's going to talk about bestowing mercy upon those that he will bestow mercy and compassion upon those that he will bestow compassion. So the Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. So we have the love and the grace. All of these come into play in this this doctrine. And the goodness of God, Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So this is a good doctrine. It's part of the plan of God that is good because God has put it in place and been pleased to reveal something of it to us. So God You need to keep the whole personality of God, the whole nature of God in view when we talk about this doctrine of election. Real quick, remember in the book of Romans, we talked about salvation, the nature of salvation, and we focused in Romans chapter 8 on this plan that is laid out in verses 28 through 30. And the word election is not in there, but when we were looking at it, I gave a brief little description that I thought that 
because it's stated in, for example, Ephesians 1.4 and other places, Titus 1.1 and other places where it speaks of God choosing in eternity past, particularly the Ephesians passage. So I think it begins with the plan of God, God setting in motion a plan that begins with election. That's not in the Romans 8 passage, but he speaks of foreknowledge. I think in the passage, I think Paul is somewhat assuming that we know other passages in Scripture, focuses on foreknowledge. So God seeing all of the options in that election. And what we also have is God predestinating. And I tried to define that in the way that I think makes sense in terms of the rest of Scripture. God setting in motion a a plan where he is orchestrating the details such that he puts people in certain families or certain nations, certain situations that are going to either allow them opportunity to come into a saving relationship in accordance with what he has set in motion in eternity past. And also in the Romans passage, he is calling us, and in time, he calls the believer. And everyone, and remember we talked about God calling through natural revelation, that's where God starts, and if a person responds to natural revelation, doesn't matter where in the world he is, God will send a missionary or a Bible or a gospel message, and not in the Romans passage, but I think God will work his plan out by bringing those that he has chosen, by convicting them, and there's passages where the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, convinces us that we're lost, convinces us that we're dead spiritually, convinces us that there's nothing that we can do. And then when we are convicted adequately, he's working on our wills, by the way, to convict us. He also illumines us such that we see, oh, the only option is what God has provided in his son on Calvary and what Jesus did on the cross. That's the only way. That's the only option. And once our minds are convinced of that, also not in uh, the Romans passage, because he's dealing with it from God's perspective, laying out God's plan. But we know here's where all of the passages like all of the passages in John, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And once we are illumined and realize that there's no other option, then we put our trust. And then the Romans passage, uh, chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, justification that we looked about in, in some detail, that's in the Romans 8, 28 through 30 passage. And he also puts the future glorification. So in eternity past, God chose, foreknew, and began the process of orchestrating a plan. And then in time, he calls us, convicts us, illumines us. We trust in him and we're justified. The point I'm making, the nature of salvation is that from start to finish, God is the one that does it all. Salvation is by grace through faith. Apart from works, we have no part in it other than believing. And God even works our will. And I could even make a case from a few passages where I think even faith is a gift. God, everything that we receive is a gift of God. But it's a total work of God. And this is the perspective I'm coming from, such that even glorification, you remember the Romans 8 passage It's put in the aorist tense, past tense, as if it's already completed, even though it looks to the future in terms of time. So that's the nature of uh, salvation. That's the nature of man. That's the nature of God and the nature of salvation. And from that perspective, I think if we hold all of those individual concepts together together, the total picture of who God is. He's a good God, does not desire that any perish, that he's a merciful God, that he's a loving God. Yes, he's a just God, but when it comes to mankind, the only way that we have access to him is if he gives mercy. And we see that. We haven't got to the passage, but that's in the Romans passage as well. Well, where are we time-wise? Let me take a quick... Ray, 
This is Patrick. Um, like to make a comment? Yes. So I'm in agreement with uh, pretty much uh, everything that you uh, discussed. And uh, but in our men's group, we were studying John 15 uh, recently, and in uh, verse 16 it says, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit." And that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. And so, in in my study Bible, it says that uh, for that verse, that Jesus made the first choice to love and to die for us, to invite us to live with Him forever. We make the next choice to accept or reject His offer. Without His choice, we would have no choice to make. That's yeah. So I think, like for. And when you were saying that all we need to do is to believe, um, it, I, I have a hard time with thinking that, hey, that's got to be my choice. And the Holy Spirit is convicting me um, because somebody prayed for me or, or something like that, you know. But anyway, I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Well, uh, that's one of the verses that we'll look at. A lot of these verses we won't spend, you know, a lot of time, but I'll be using them to kind of illustrate different things and to kind of bring out this broader topic. But that's one of them where Jesus says, I chose you, but, you know, you didn't choose me. And I think uh, there's two sides on that. I think part of that is he's reflecting the choices that God made. Now, the context is to the, the 12 disciples, so you have to always keep the context of all of these passages that we'll look at. Uh, I won't be able to develop the context of all of them, but that one in particular. But that brings out this whole idea. It God is the one that initiates it all. And I think he's also reflecting on the nature of man in a broad sense, even though that specific one, he's just talking about the choosing of the 12. But we don't choose him. He brings us to a point where we believe, okay, this is my only option and and in that option, the only way I have a relationship is by trusting in him. Now, the disciples obviously accepted Christ's offer to be a disciple at that point. He chose them. They didn't choose him. So that kind of reflects in a broad way this this whole idea of election that I think is there. So good comments there. Okay, so this was more for the, the choosing of the disciples, not necessarily... Just coming to faith. Yes, uh, yes. Okay, thank you. But that same idea, I think, is in other passages that speak of individual believers as well. And and that's what you need to kind of sort out. And, and I think part of the misunderstanding is sometimes, particularly in Romans 9, that speaking with the nation of Israel, that's that's why I'm going to want to lay this this groundwork, and we won't get to it. There are different categories and different areas of election, you might say. And I've, I've got the main ones on your outline sheet that I, I I sent out, and we'll go over them, but we won't have time today. What I'd like to do is let's conclude by looking at the terms, and I'll go over this a little bit quickly, and this is where we'll begin next time. But I think let's just look at the terms for now. The main terms that are used, and I'll give you the, the Greek one, the Greek words, I think I printed them out. I don't know if your printers are able to use the font that I sent. But I always mention when we're talking about a theological term, it's important to see how that term was used in its ordinary, everyday sense. The way the term is used kind of in the ordinary culture, not having to do with anything spiritual. And this is a relatively common word. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word occurs 170 times. Now, the majority of them pertain to God, by the way, but 170 times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, 51 times the, the major words both verbs and nouns, but in its ordinary sense, let me just give you a couple of the passages. You might just jot these down and you can read them later. It just has the, the ordinary sense, the ordinary idea of choosing one option or another. I think I've talked about this before 
when we were in Romans 8 uh, briefly, but let's expand upon it. But it, it's just this morning, you chose to get up. Maybe you would have preferred to sleep, but you chose to get up and turn on your computer. You made a series of decisions. You clicked on the link and you chose to sit in on this Bible study. You got other options. You could have slept in. Oh, it's Sunday. Let's watch TV or whatever. But you chose, you made a particular decision. The word is just the basic word for making choices. And a lot of the usages, not all of them, pertain to that kind of idea. For example, in Luke ten forty-two, it's speaking of Mary and Martha. Remember the little incident? Mary makes a decision to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is very, very busy. Jesus is dealing with both of them. And in verse 42, Luke 10, 42, but only one thing is necessary, Jesus is speaking here. For Mary has chosen, there's the word, the verb, Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That's kind of the everyday, ordinary sense or ordinary usage of the word, choosing one option over another. Now, there are some spiritual implications there, but the word is also used just to choose just everyday things. For example, the Genesis passage that I have there, God, or Abraham rather, looks out, you know, there's a conflict between the children of Lot or the family of Lot and the family of Abraham. They've grown to such a size that now the, the the land is restricting them. And what does Abraham do? What does he say to Lot? He tells him, you make the choice. And in Hebrews 13, 11, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Just an ordinary everyday choice. Now that has lots of ramifications in this case. But just choosing one option over another, that's the ordinary sense. And it's used both in the Old Testament, and I gave you an example from Luke in the New Testament. So the Genesis 13, uh, 11, there's other passages in the Old Testament choosing different options. Just the ordinary, everyday sense. Another New Testament one, Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose... Men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So there's, this is after this, the first missionary journey and they're preparing to send others, uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And you have some others that are mentioned there. The church just made some choices. They could have chosen some, but they didn't and they chose others or some and they went along their way. So those are some examples of the ordinary sense. I've said before, every theological term in the Bible has an everyday sense. And then we build upon that, and now the Bible attaches a theological or a sense in which God is involved. And in terms of election, the the idea of the word is just God choosing. The theological sense is God choosing certain options over others. And there's lots of passages, as I said. The Hebrew word is bachar, and for the sake of time, I won't give you all of the usages. Let me just summarize some of them. It's used in the ordinary sense. Besides that, Genesis 13 passage, I'll give you some other ones next time. We'll look at a Deuteronomy passage. If you want a Deuteronomy passage or another passage for that, Deuteronomy 30, 19, I'll look at that. Uh, here's a Interesting one. It's used in the both the Hebrew and in the New Testament in a qualitative sense. And this is going to come into our discussion because sometimes this is emphasized to get a, around some of the issues that we've been talking about. And what I mean by a qualitative sense, the, the Hebrew word bachar or bachar with a deep guttural there. Sometimes that word is used in the sense of something that is choice, something that is select, like some products might identify themselves as these are the choice products. In other words, very select. Well, 
it's used in that sense, not in many passages, but it does have that sense. Now, I've heard some Bible teachers that will stress this aspect and I think import it in some passages and I think not properly, but we'll, we'll get into that when we look at some of the details. And then it's used in that clear theological sense, you might say, where God chooses. And there's lots of references to God choosing, in some cases, individuals. In other cases, God choosing even situations where the Hebrew word, God choosing the temple, for example, to dwell in the temple. Lots of passages God choosing Jerusalem as his dwelling place and his center for his people. That's God's choice. And then there's lots of passages that refer to Israel. And they're used in a more theological sense in terms of God choosing the nation of Israel over and against other nations. And that's the usage that we have primarily in Romans 9 through 11. Okay. The point I'm making is, and you've, Those of you that have been a part of our group, we do these word studies in order to understand the range of meaning. And what I'm giving you here is the range of meaning of these terms that are translated elect or election or to choose in this more restricted, technical, theological sense. And then from this range of meaning, then when we go to individual passages, You make a decision. How is this word used in this particular context? Context decides meaning. Remember your basic hermeneutical principles. What I'm developing here is all of the possibilities of how this word could be used. And the Hebrew word is used in these three broad categories. There might be some subcategories that you could attach there. But in general, an ordinary sense, a qualitative sense, And in that broad sense of God choosing, God is the one that is making the choices and decisions. And there's lots of things that God chooses. In fact, on your outline sheet, I've got some general categories where God is choosing, where it's very specific, and the word uh, bachar is used. The Greek word, we have a word group where most of these occur. There's 51 occurrences of it. 22 of them appear in the verb form, and there's the verb. And by the way, this is where the Ephesians 1-4 passage falls, and some others as well that we'll get into. There's also the noun form, so eklegomai is the way that you pronounce the verb form, and 22 of them, and coincidentally, 22 also of the noun form, so it's kind of split evenly. Eklektas, and sometimes that one is translated the elect or the chosen ones, elect ones. I'll give you the passages on it next week. I'm just kind of summarizing. And if you want to do a word study this week, that'd be great. In other words, look up all of the usages. And by the way, I looked up every single usage and put them in their categories In fact, I come up with these categories by looking at every single one. I don't make the categories and then put them in. I I do the reverse. You try to look at how the word is used, and then you come up with the categories based on how they're used. And I'll give you different categories, but the verb and the noun are used in this ordinary sense as well. The noun could be used in the qualitative sense, but then you have the majority of them dealing more in a theological sense as well. The word that we have in the Romans passage that we looked at, Romans 9.11, it can be used as an adjective, but more often it's used as a noun. So, ekloge, so a long e there, that's how that one's pronounced. That one only occurs seven times, so if you add 22 plus 22 and 7, you get 51 usages of that Greek word. Now, there's another word, which is interesting. It only occurs three times. It is also translated in this idea of to choose. So that's probably a good stopping point. Any any comments? Uh, basically, we can conclude today with humility and with joy and with confidence and go out from here motivated to live out why we have been chosen, and the calling that we have, living it out particularly in holiness 
but also in ministry. Any comments? Anything controversial so far? Any disagreements? Ray, this is Bill. Yes, Bill. Let me let me make one one comment to kind of summarize this excellent work you're doing. Um, and and that comment starts off with uh, we're dealing with the very word of God. Yes. We're dealing with something that God has written through his Holy Spirit and communicated to us faithfully without error in its original language. Yes. Now, it, it's always important to come back to that. And so if we, if we see what appear to be contradictions, like the passages that, that uh, say that we need to choose and that God does not will any should perish, and the passages that uh, speak of selection, what we have to come back to is the issue is not with the scriptures. The issue is with our understanding. Yes, always. And we have to continually come back to that point of humility that you've made, Ray, that, that just because we don't understand something doesn't make it untrue. The, the lack is our under, lack of understanding. The lack is not in God's truthfulness and faithfulness. Yeah, and, and there, to add to what you're saying, the word goes beyond our intellectual capability, and there's always some tension in some of these areas like this one. And I think it's best to try to hold the tension, and avoid, I think what you're encouraging is avoid going to one side and then, you know, neglecting or denying or undermining the other side. Is that a good summary of what you're saying as well? It, it absolutely is, that, that just as you said, what God has told us in his word is beyond our capability to understand. Uh, we can take what he has told us at face value. He wrote it so that we could take it at face value. But if we try to then take it deeper than that, we're now moving into realms that we do not have the intellectual capacity to understand. Therefore, a constant sense of humility uh, and a constant sense of trust in the scriptures is absolutely important in all uh Yeah, and we want to trust that loving God. We want to trust that sovereign God. We want to trust that holy God that we talked about earlier. And by the way... And and Ray, you also have to add into that all that you talked about in man's depravity because they're, they're in our own lives. The effects of sin sometimes help us or hinder us. Yes. From understanding yes. a concept because of damage in our own lives, whether from others or, you know, anything that hinders us being able to understand a particular concept. And so we, you almost, that's where our faith steps in and says, I don't understand it. I haven't necessarily seen it, but this is what you say. So help me, help me to see what you see. Yes, exactly. Very good. And for those of you that are not familiar with the Monies, those of you that are out of Albuquerque or whatever, that comes from probably the ones that have probably the most intellectual capacity of any of us in the group. The encouragement that we can't understand necessarily everything that God has revealed, but we can trust him. He calls upon us to trust him with it. Okay, good. Who? Any other comments before we close in a word of prayer here? Ray, this is Katie. Katie, uh, something that um, something that I think about is, um, you know, Adam and Eve were given um, essentially the choice to choose between life and death, and they chose death. But God still clothed them and gave them their La- basic needs. And gave them so many more years of life, like you said. And I just think that that is just, it shows God's character so much that even though we turned our backs on him and we chose death, that he still clothes us and he, he provides for us. Yes. So, um, it, it just blows my mind that he loves us that much. It should humble us. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and by the way, the the clothing is not just providing the needs, but that means that there was a sacrifice, that God sacrificed a substitute. So you have the idea of a substitutionary death in payment for their sin, anticipating the ultimate sacrifice. And the skins, clothing, 
you see this in the book of Revelation, represents God basically clothing us in his righteousness. So it's a picture of God saving Adam and Eve, the clothing. It's a picture of their justification. wow. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. I mean, it's not stated there, but if you develop the concepts that are in seed form in Genesis 3, in the rest of Scripture, that's the theological conclusion you can come to. Any other comments? That is really Great. Hi, Ray. This is Jim. Jim. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing we might, we might uh, expand on a little bit in the future, if you choose to, uh, using the word choose. Choose. In my, sov- in my sovereign, authoritative choice. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so you said you should teach, uh, to Ephesians 4, with regard to Ephesians 4, you said... 1-4. Ephesians 1-4, yes. You said that uh, should motivate us to holy living. I certainly agree with holy and blameless living. It should motivate us to do that. Uh, in Ephesians 1-4... Uh, it says, of course, that he chose us in Christ. Yep. Uh, so, uh, we're already positionally, that seems to, to me that we are positionally justified before him. And that's the place, uh, where we can live righteously and blamelessly. Uh, but it, it's not, it's not saying that he chose us to go out and live that way. It's it's saying that in that position we can. Okay, we'll we'll discuss that. We'll talk about that. Yeah, good good comment though. Yeah, that there's a little controversy in there, but we'll we'll discuss that as well. And you're bringing out yeah one aspect of that discussion. Anyone else before we close? Um, if not, since Jim's the last one, he has to close for us. Any other comments? I'll probably discourage any other comments because then you'd have to close, right? None? Okay, Jim. Okay, well, Father, uh, there is a great uh, stress for many in, in addressing the uh, subject of election that you've chosen to uh, reveal to us in your scriptures. And so we pray that uh, as we seek to understand what we can, uh, that uh, this that the unity of the spirit would be in our hearts, and uh, that ultimately each of us uh, would be motivated further in our lives to walk in a manner that glorifies you and brings encouragement to those about us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.